Cow now, brown cow. Unique New York. Unique New York. All right, let's do it. Okay. Is it on? It's been recording a little bit. Oh. So I'm going to put the unique New York in there. Unique New York. Yes, we just did an episode on ultramental status a few weeks ago, episode number 46. But ultramental status is a really common consult question for inpatient neurologists. Today's episode features a clinical case involving a young woman with seizures and encephalopathy. And because of the several medical complications, I've asked my friend, who's an internist, to walk us through the case. My name is Fima Matrat. I'm a internist hospitalist here in Philadelphia in my, we could call it, end of my, or middle of my PGY6 year. Thank you, Jim, so much for having me. Um, it's an honor to be a part of your impressive project. It's certainly no easy feat during residency. My wife will also be happy that we are discussing ultramental status so that I don't have to consult neurology for that in the future. (laughs) Thank you so much. Moving right along into the case presentation, a 28-year-old African-American woman was brought into the ED by paramedics after having a witness convulsive seizure in her graduate school classroom. The paramedics report intermittent whole-body convulsions for six minutes prior to their arrival. Five milligrams of intravenous midazolam was administered in the field with cessation of seizure activity. In the emergency room, she is unresponsive and afebrile. Pulse is 112 and regular. Blood pressure, 168 over 91. Respiratory rate of 10 and a normal SpO2. A head CT was unremarkable. As she is being wheeled back to her room in the ED, she begins to moan. I actually want to focus on the fact that this patient, that she's brought in unresponsive. What does unresponsive mean? Is that unresponsive to pain or is it lightly responsive to pain? Is it confused, agitated? Where, you know, that's a question that I always want my team to be telling me on a patient like this, just so I know what exactly unresponsive means. Sure, that's a good question. And I think that the way that I like to conceptualize it Instead of using descriptive terms like stuporous and comatose and obtunded, I like to describe a stimulus and a response. So if somebody is unresponsive, I assume that the patient is unresponsive to all stimuli. But, you know, in general, I would say patient is unresponsive to noxious stimulus or will moan to sternal rub or to supraorbital pressure, will groan and withdraw from pain. Those are the types of responses that I describe. And as far as what our patient has come in with and considering what this patient could have that has left her unresponsive, we've already discussed at length some of the fundamental diagnostic tests in patients who've had first seizure of life in our prior episode number 45 on the management of status epilepticus. So we typically get a comprehensive metabolic panel, a complete blood count, urgent head CT to exclude a mass lesion or reason for the seizure. So something's like hemorrhage or an acute ischemic stroke in an elderly patient so we'll get these tests eventually, and in the meantime, Dr. Matrit, you get more history from the paramedics and her emergency contact through the school. Her sister, who is healthy, reports no personal or family history of seizures in your patient. Her only medical history is notable for morbid obesity. No drugs or alcohol, no new medications, but she takes a daily multivitamin. Usually the patient and her sister talk on the phone every night. But for the last two days, the patient has been saying strange things and not making sense. But there were no other specific complaints from the patient during these phone calls. 
So you start to think about a progressive form of altered mental status with a prodrome. A prodrome does not have to include fever, myalgias, chills. It can in include changes to somebody's uh, behavior. So you want to make sure that you've got your usual broad differential, probably focusing on metabolic infectious processes. When you think about this patient and you're receiving this information, the fact that it's two days also makes you want to hear at some point that they are warm, indicating that they are well perfusing and they're protecting their airway. And then you can uh, parse out which of these metabolic abnormalities or whatever else may be going on. The time course of two days uh, is really helpful in terms of metabolic disturbances, hypoglycemia would probably be the first and most important thing to always rule out, which it has been in this case. But also uh, hypo and hypernatremia, hypo-hypercalcemia, and then uremia, liver failure. And I would also include hypothyroidism. Next, you, you really want to be thinking about infection, which is what you always think about when you hear a prodrome keeping in mind that a seizure or altermental status are both possible effects of the sepsis syndrome itself or potentially even shock. Another consideration in a young person, although any patient really, uh, especially uh, depending on your setting, would be toxic ingestions and withdrawal syndromes. So there's a number of these things that we covered that are sort of can't miss. Fortunately, our initial review of the patient's data uh, will either include or exclude most of these diagnoses. And then finally, uh, whether or not you get the EEG, if the patient kind of comes back to baseline, if it's clearly an infectious process, I may not necessarily reach for that. And then finally, the, the, the thing I'll say here is it's important to always be systematic. So did we talk about congenital and degenerative processes. We really didn't. We also didn't talk about inflammatory. But really, you know, this patient doesn't have skin findings. She doesn't have a syndrome. She doesn't have those things. So even though I didn't mention them, they are something to consider as well. So for our patient in particular, mm -hmm. what types of diagnostic testing is a part of your initial battery? You already did mention that an EEG may be considered in this patient down the road. We probably wouldn't proceed to that first line because... First of all, it wouldn't change management as long as she returns to her baseline mental status, and um, that's also not part of our current guidelines. But what other laboratory and diagnostic battery would you perform? A wise mentor told me that when you get the call overnight that you've got an altered patient, you need to ask the nurse for vitals, O2, SAT, and sugar. Those are the things that can be done before you even arrive to see the patient, and they can be potentially quickly fixed and really can save a patient. So in addition to the uh, vital signs, O2-SAT and hypoglycemia, I would get a CBC, a CMP, TSH. I would get an ABG. I would get an EKG urinalysis. I would get a chest x-ray. What stands out in this case uh, that may or may not catch the attention of many providers is her blood pressure being 168 over 90. Is it because she has an underlying uh, hypertensive disorder that may predispose her to having more fluctuating vital signs? Or is there a more um, ominous cause? Certainly, if you saw hypertension and bradycardia, that would uh, suggest a head bleed or some other process that would raise intracranial pressure. The ED physician has evaluated the patient as well, and she appears stable, although minimally responsive to noxious stimuli. Airway is protected, and she's hemodynamically stable. Her urine pregnancy test returns positive, 
and her urinalysis shows severe proteinuria without any nitrates or leukocyte esterase. A urine protein to creatinine ratio indicates a proteinuria of 3.5 grams per day. HIV antibody screen was negative. The peripheral white blood cell count is elevated at 14.5, but the remaining CBC and comprehensive metabolic panel, including liver function testing, are normal. A chest x-ray shows no active disease. A lumbar puncture is performed and remarkable for 29 white blood cells per high-power field with a 78% neutrophilic pleocytosis, 3,500 red blood cells, a protein of 70 mg per deciliter, and a normal CSF glucose. Gram stain and culture and HSV PCR are sent. The MRI is ordered and scheduled for the next day. So you've made the diagnosis of eclampsia, which is both a neurologic and an obstetric emergency. What next? I think here we uh, can talk a little bit about um, eclampsia in terms of the spectrum of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Pre-eclampsia involves having elevated blood pressure, which when it becomes eclampsia is characterized by seizures. The seizures can occur either pre-delivery, at delivery, or after delivery within 48 hours. We think that eclampsia is due to placental vasoconstriction with resultant CNS impairment and either vasculoplegia or vasodilatory responses that occur afterwards, including hyperemia. The mortality rate also is about 1 to about 5% for eclampsia, which is again a fraction of the people who are pre-eclamptic. The other important features here that we should discuss are the high response rate to magnesium sulfate, as well as intensive blood pressure control. These patients should ideally be placed um, in an intensive care setting and on a beta blocker, such as labetalol, in order to better and more finely and accurately control their blood pressure. According to a Cochrane review, Magnesium sulfate was found to be superior to diazepam for the treatment of women with eclamptic seizures. Compared to diazepam, intravenous magnesium reduced the risk of seizure recurrence by 57% and the risk of maternal death by 41%. However, there was no difference in perinatal or neonatal mortality, despite the fact that benzodiazepines have long been categorized as pregnancy class C medications. It's important to recognize here that in the absence of an obvious cause of seizures, even in a pregnant woman, the benefits of benzodiazepines as a first-line therapy in status epilepticus greatly outweigh the known risks as long as there are no other contraindications to therapy. After she receives intravenous magnesium, adequate fluid resuscitation, intravenous acyclovir, ceftriaxone, and vancomycin, which are all pregnancy class B medications and which were all given by the emergency medicine physician as part of uh, meningitis coverage and encephalitis coverage, the patient regains partial alertness to where she can answer some simple questions. But within 24 hours, she becomes febrile to 101.7 degrees Fahrenheit and is now more confused, so she has declined again. Yeah. This is not something that's uh, uncommon. Um, One of the hardest parts, one of the biggest challenges we have is at what point do we uh, uh, admit to having confirmation bias and and, and sort of uh, re-evaluating our initial diagnosis. That's why it's important that the emergency room did start antibiotics for this patient because you really want to start them and then get your uh, other data to uh, take those off if they're not indicated. 
Now that she's got a fever and she's more confused, and if you recall, she did not have a fever before, although she did have other potentially sympathetic abnormalities, you have to decide uh, whether this is a product of further autonomic abnormalities or paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity, or whether there's an infectious process that is now blossoming. It's always reasonable to uh, what we call pan culture or repeat the chest x-ray, repeat the urinalysis, and get blood cultures again. So there's also the fact that a high fever associated with confusion may make you think more strongly that this is a primary neurologic infection or encephalitis. Also, depending on the time of year and your location, that may also uh, point you towards uh, one of those diagnoses more. The repeat urinalysis continues to show moderate to severe proteinuria, but negative leukocyte esterase and nitrites. Blood cultures were sent and have yielded no growth after 24 hours. A chest x-ray shows an evolving small right lower lobe consolidation. MRI of the brain is remarkable for multifocal areas of largely subcortical T2 prolongation of the occipital and temporal lobes and mild to moderate cerebral edema, but no areas of restricted diffusion or hemorrhage. I think that you've got a constellation of things here that, that make it a very interesting case because you've got elevated blood pressure in a seizing pregnant patient. You also have what seems to be a blossoming infection. Whether that came before or after is, is hard to say, but she may have aspirated at one point during one of these seizures. The MRI seems to be consistent with posterior reversible encephalopathy, um, which is actually the neuroimaging correlate of eclampsia. In this case, it could have also represented um, tumefactive multiple sclerosis. The features seen on this MRI are not typical of, of an infectious uh, meningoencephalitis. They're not typical of temporal lobe involvement of just HSV encephalitis or even autoimmune encephalitis and other things that we've been discussing. Alternative considerations like gliomatosis cerebri from a multifocal glioma, reversible uh, cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, or, or RCVS, uh, osmotic demyelination, and progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML, due to JC virus, can produce similar findings uh, in extreme cases. However, a number of both historical factors in this patient and lab data suggest that those are very, very low on our differential. Nevertheless, we would want an MRI after a few weeks to confirm that this was in fact press and not a process that is lingering, such as a chronic inflammatory or infiltrative process. With regard to the chest x-ray findings, of course we always say that chest x-rays lag. Their clinical recovery, the aspiration pneumonia itself should be treated for a week with adequate gram-negative and anaerobic coverage. And you also really have to consider that you want to see improvement in this patient's um, mental status before sort of closing your book on the differential. HSV PCR eventually returns negative, and the acyclovir was discontinued. Final CSF bacterial culture grew no bacteria. Blood cultures remained negative. The patient defervesced within 12 hours of the lobar consolidation observed on X-ray and she was eventually narrowed to amoxicillin clavulinate for the treatment of likely aspiration pneumonia. She was extubated without complications. She was continued on intravenous magnesium sulfate to maintain serum levels between 4.8 and 8.4 milligrams per deciliter for the next 72 hours. There were no recurrent seizures. Her blood pressure eventually normalized with the use of oral labetalol, 
and her mental status improved gradually over the next week. The obstetrics team recommended emergent cesarean delivery of the fetus during this time, and the infant was immediately taken to the neonatal ICU for monitoring. According to the fetal ultrasound performed on admission, the patient had an estimated gestation of 31 weeks. Repeat MRI of the patient two weeks after delivery showed near-complete resolution of the subcortical T2 changes seen on prior MRI. All right, well, great case. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dr. Machred. Thank you, Jim, so much for having me. That's all for Brainwaves. I'm Jim Siegler. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.